You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. You're with uh, Rebecca this morning. Uh, I'm doing the show solo today, so uh, just bear with me a little bit. Um, yeah, I hope Annie is doing well wherever, she, whatever she's up to today. Uh, so today we're going to hear from Humphrey McQueen uh, about the legacy of Clary O'Shea. Uh, and then we're going to hear um, an update on what's happening for the Tamil people uh, in Tamil Ilam in Sri Lanka. So, yeah, let's start off with uh, Humphrey. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. It's a pre-record because we're off doing things, but uh, in the meantime we've uh, gathered together some really interesting information for you uh, to keep you busy on a Saturday morning and the following is an interview I did with Humphrey McQueen and it's to help us remember Clary O'Shea and the defeat of the Penal Powers 50th anniversary which comes up on May the 15th, Wednesday May the 15th. Now this is a really important event in working class history in Australia uh, but I'll leave it to Humphrey to describe the events uh, and Clary O'Shea, in fact. This all happened in 1969 and it was all about uh, removing the uh, ability of the uh, uh, Industrial Commission to send union uh, leaders to prison for non-payment of uh, fines or complying to... Uh, orders by the commission. So it was a very important uh, event. But there's lots of things involved in this. It led to a general strike. Now, it might seem strange and wondrous these days that this should happen. But uh, as I said, the conversation with Humphrey McQueen gives a, a much better understanding of what happened. Now, if you want to go to celebrations of this event, there's going to be a joint RTBU, Rail, Tram and Bus Union and Spirit of Eureka event at the uh, substation 1 Market Street, Newport uh, in Melbourne, next to the Newport Railway Station on Wednesday, May the 15th. The doors open at 5.30pm and there's going to be speeches at 6.30pm. Lots of people who are involved in the event will be there uh, and... Uh, it's important for people to remember such a thing, they say, because what are the lessons for us today as we gear up for a major battle to change the rules? Tickets are $10. You can uh, RSVP at rtbuvic.com.au forward slash Clary O'Shea, and that's C-L-A-R-R-I-E-O-S-H-E-A. You can also contact uh, Spirit of Eureka uh, 0417 
0401 that's 0417456001 and that's Wednesday May the 15th so let's hear from uh, Humphrey McQueen thank you very much for taking time to tell us about this very important event which is going to be uh, uh, commemorated on uh, May the 15th, uh, the Clary O'Shea and the P- penal dis- uh, powers dispute with tramways that happened in 1969. Yep. Um, indeed, uh, this was a major event and is still largely remembered. There's a great story that one of his comrades tells about coming back from a trip to China six years later. And they get to the airport and they go up to customs. And as they approach the customs, the customs officer says, Clary, you just go straight through, mate. (laughs) So that was the effect that it had. People then and still remember the great significance that Clary played within this. And he played it because of how, like his class, um, and I think it's important to see here that as Clary would be the, the last person to say that I did it. it. I mean, Clary understood from every experience in his life that it was the wisdom of the class that he had learnt and to which he contributed and to which he put into practice. But it wasn't some great cult of the personality that was involved in this. And to understand this a bit, I think it's worth going back to his childhood and his early years. His father had been a miner on the west coast of Tasmania, uh, where, like many miners, he got um, um, terrible lung disease. Mm. And while he didn't die for quite some time, he was never able to work fully again and therefore never fully able to support his family. And from a kid from about the age of nine... Clary went out, and many kids did this, of course, to earn a few shillings. And within next to no time, he was bringing in a pound a week. That's a lot of money. Yeah, he was a newspaper Um, boy. And he he gave it to his mother, and she gave him six months spending money. Then he went and he got a job down um, away from the family. He was earning very good money in the late 1920s. He was earning £4, 12 shillings and sixpence a week. He paid 25 shillings in board. He kept seven and six for himself. And he sent the rest home to his family. Now, you might think, well, you know, that's a very great thing for an individual to do. But I think that for that class, and if you know people of my parents' generation and things, it would never have crossed their mind to do anything else. The notion that, you know, okay, I'm growing up now, I'm leaving home and I'm going to abandon you, this was like scabbing. Mm. would never, ever have crossed the mind of, of not, just, not just Clary O'Shea, but the whole class to which he belonged. This was how, as a young person, he was tempered in the struggle. So, so but, the family, you know, family was the economic unit, and people had fairly precarious existences. Well, it was you know it was where you learnt about class consciousness. You learnt it in the family. Um, you learnt it from your uncles and your aunts and everybody around you. You know that it wasn't just something that you learnt in the workplace. It was certainly there, but this this sense that you were responsible for the people around you compared, if I might say so. 
In Canberra, there is a Labor Club. There are several of them, and they raise a lot of money for the ALP. Their slogan is, it's all about you. Oh, my God. Clary would never... Well, you couldn't explain to Clary or to my parents or, you know, that generation what that meant. You know, how do you mean it's all about you? No, it's not. It's all about us. Us. I know. You know? And if... I mean, I've often thought about this and thinking, how could I have explained it to the members of the ALP branch that my parents joined me up in, in when I was 15 in 1957? They wouldn't have understood it. It's crazy, and isn't had it? Had they understood it, finally... What they would have said is, well, if you think it's all about you, go and join the... Why don't you go and join the Liberal Liberal Party? Party. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Of course, you know, the truth is that that's what's happened to the ALP. So for someone like Clary... Clary Clary, uh, got, as a kid, got a job. It was was important. He got a job at one of the... as a copy boy or something of that nature with one of the... a Labor star, was it, or...? Yeah, well, well, down in Victoria, um, there was a weekly Labor paper. It was it was called the Labour Call. Oh yeah, right. and okay. th- these were the days in which there was a Labour Party, and in Victoria it had been heavily influenced by Tom Mann and the Victorian Socialist Party, so that it was a pretty radical, prog- you know, very progressive publication. And Clary got a job there as a copy boy, you know, and he met a lot of these old union activists and Labour Party activists and members of the Socialist Party. Um, so that's where he got a lot of his early ideas as to how the world should be on top of the what he'd learnt from daily life in a capitalist society because he saw what had happened to his father, how when you work for them and you fall by the wayside, they just throw you aside. That was the first big lesson in class struggle that I think Clary had acquired. Anyway, he comes back to Melbourne. And he gets a job in the late twenties um, as as work um, for the uh, for the tramways there, and he becomes, of course, active in the trade union. You know, well, he uh, was young, and he'd come back, and he was married, and this was his job, wasn't it? And he got yeah, five pounds is, a week. You know, and he was, you'd have to say, what a fortunate move for him and his family that was, because if he'd stayed out of there, the chances in the depression is that he would have been out of work for four or five years. That's exactly right. But by working for the government, um, he was one of those who who had permanent employment, um, but he didn't therefore say, oh, well, I'm safe, I don't have to worry about anybody else. I should he cut was... in here quickly that um, Clary O'Shea's family, even before this, is a, a real template for Australian working class, in a sense. One of his older brothers died in, in France during the First World War, right? Yep. And and then yep. there's also another story about one of his other brothers didn't get any employment again until 1938 when he joined yep. the Air Force, but just going into the war, yep. which sort of yep. gives you an idea of the nature of Australian society, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it gives you, well, yeah, indeed, of Australian, you know, well, of, of the nature of Australian capitalism. Yeah, well, they, they, that's yeah. what... I mean, that's what they were suffering under, and that's that's the lesson, one of the lessons that Clary was absorbing. Um, and out of this, by 1932, as a number of people in Clary's situation did, they looked at the world, they saw the failure of, of the Scullin Labor government at a federal level, um, how it had been sabotaged from within and attacked from without, and realised that that wasn't the way forward, 
And in 1932, uh, in those early years of the 30s, he, like many of these really active union people, he joins the Communist Party. Now, at this stage, we have to say that the labour movement in Australia had probably never been weaker uh, since it got organised in the 1880s. Um, there had been a series of disastrous defeats from 1927 to 1930, and the union movement had to be rebuilt from the ground up, and that's what Clary played his part in. Uh, the tramways union was pretty strong in itself because of the permanent employment there, but in other areas it all had to be rebuilt, and the party played an enormous part in that, um, in leading it and organising it, and learning a number of lessons as to what they had to do. And, I mean, I'm, we're now getting away a bit from Clary, and we'll come back in a minute. But one of the great defeats had been down on the waterfront in the, um, in, in the 28 dispute. And the permanent, well, the long-term members of the Waterside Workers' Union had been marginalised. They brought scabs on. Mm. Um, and to rebuild the union... The communists saw they had to swallow their pride. Imagine how painful this was and take the scabs into the Union. Otherwise, you had this Trojan horse there all the time. And that was a hard lesson, but one of the hard lessons that they learned. So that by 37, 38, the, the communists were really the leading force throughout the trade union movement in Australia. Um, and Clary was a very important part of that in terms of what he learned from it because they were being steeled in the struggle. Um, in the early 40s, he's become an official of his union, a federal official, and then by 45, he becomes the local secretary um, of, the, of the tramways union. Now, can I now, just jump in here and say, yeah. that, tell listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to Humphrey McQueen about the Clary O'Shea uh, leading on to the important... Uh, dispute around penal powers that happened in 1969. Uh, I'll also cut in here and say that uh, we have to talk a little bit about his personality because he was a strategist and he was a great organiser. That's what was, it was proven, wasn't it? But he was also yeah. self-deprecating. He wasn't a vainglorious man. Oh, far from it. Far, far from it. But in that sense, and this is the point I'm really trying to make, I hope, is that in that sense he was like generations of activists yeah even in even in not pushing himself forward that was how that generation of activists saw themselves they saw it as a class struggle and they understood that perfectly well but they had to learn it too and yeah and you know there are big struggles that he engages in uh, in 1954 um, and then there's the dispute in the 1964 over whether they will allow the tramways board, headed up by a major general, I might add, As speaking always. of the class power, power yeah. um, that they brought a major general in to run the tramways. Um, he uh, was trying to reduce the number of staff on the on the, um, the, the that were going to be on the buses from two people to one. Uh, Clary, I might say here in 1945, when they wanted to put to keep some of the women on the buses who'd been brought on during the war because of um, the manpower shortages, um, Clary said, yes, but they have to get equal pay and they're going to be called conductors, not conductresses. And that carried forward that equal pay demand 
and equality that the Communist Party had been pushing for all the way through the 30s. So... But, but one, one of the things one of the things that's really important about him too was that they apparently it's reported that one of the things that he always did was uh, transmitted the message of the majority of members, this, even if he didn't actually agree. Yeah, and this was I mean if you talk to generations of activists there, I mean I mean one one of my old comrades from from Queensland, who died a couple of years ago, said to me, he'd been working in an abattoir, very militant workers. Yep. And he said, if the union called us out for anything, we'd go. But the blokes wouldn't stay out for more than 24 hours if they didn't agree with it. (laughs) And that was one of the lessons the union leadership had to learn, that if it was a real issue, they'd stay out and they wouldn't go back. But if it was just a sort of farting in church offence, yeah. Then they'd say, okay, we'll go out, but we're not staying. Yeah. And Clary understood that because he'd grown up through the movement. He'd been, a, you know, he'd worked on the trams himself. He, I mean, he understood the mood and the temper of the people around him, of what was truly important in the class struggle. Um, and so, you know, on a couple of occasions, you know, he was expected to engage in a struggle, and he said, no, you know, we are not up to this at this, at, at this particular time. But when the times were on, uh, from 64 onwards, there was no turning back. Now, what I want to throw in here is, is a couple of larger issues. Um, and, and now to get away from Clary, yeah. um, I mean, there's plenty of material out there. We're putting it up online. You'll be able to read about it. There's you know, the stuff of the actual struggle itself. What I think needs to be understood then and now is the broad conditions that the capitalist system was going through in the 1960s. Now, from a Marxist point of view, the thing that you need to understand at any point in the capitalist system is what is the socially necessary cost of reproducing labour power. Because that's what the capitalist is chasing for and that's what the worker has to get if if we are to maintain any kind of decent standard. And in the 60s, this was, you know, people talked about the affluent society. Well, you know, but certainly the things you needed to not fall into poverty to, you know, probably the easiest example to understand this is that if by the 50s you couldn't afford a radio or you couldn't even afford to go to radio rentals and pay to rent one, then you were in deep poverty. Mm. But by... By the mid to late 60s, it wasn't a radio, it was a TV set. And that was, yeah, that's an example of how what is socially necessary in a society uh, had really changed. So that the pressure on wages and the demand that ordinary workers had, and this applied to the white-collar workers. In the past, white-collar workers could say, well... We can put up with slightly lower wages each week because we get them 52 weeks of the year and we get them for 40 years of our lives, whereas people out on you know, other jobs, you know, they're unemployed, they, you know, they can't be sure that the money's going to be there all the time. Now, once this demand for, you know, when I first went to school in, you know, in, the, in the late 1940s, there were kids going to school without any shoes. Yeah. You didn't see that in the 1960s. No, that's right. These kind of changes had come over. And so the workers throughout the whole thing, and I should perhaps take the opportunity to throw in here, 
that there were white-collar strikes in 1968 and 1969. Indeed, amazingly, the bank clerks went on strike later in 1969. Wow. You know, so that the whole of, the, of, you know, the whole of working people were truly in a state of, of, of demanding, because they had to, that they could not go on in the old way. And this was, and on the other side, and the bosses understood this, and they thought, what are we going to do about it? And one of the things they did, finally they convinced the Arbitration Commission to bring together the old notion of the basic wage that everybody got, plus the margins for skill, and put them into something called a total wage. Now, that Isn't that fascinating? Itself... They had to come up with a sort of a conceptualisation of why people should be allowed to have more money in the wage. Yeah, and however, of course, they didn't want to pay any more. No, that's right. What, what they objected to in the old system, and well understood from their point of view, was that once the fitters and turners got their margin for skill, yeah. that flowed on to everybody else. Mm. And not only that, once they got it, it was a kind of game of... Well, I suppose you could say you would then leap over that to, to try and get a higher one. Yeah, yeah. And this just went on and on and on. It was a permanent, a permanent pressure on the wages bill for the capitalists. And at the now, moment, what the what's going did, on? And, and what's going on at the moment is the government's got a cap on uh, government workers, which is the same kind of thing. But go on. What well, did the commission I mean, do? All of these kinds of ways to contain the cost for. For, uh, for the reproduction of labour. That's right. Um, now, what the capitalist, uh, what the commission said to the capitalist was, okay, we will grant an increase in the total wage, but you are allowed to absorb it into the, the existing over-award payments. Now, we see a lot of that now, of this relationship between over-award payments and you know, thinking how they're trying to do that again then. Now, for the people working in all of the areas of the metal industry, this was announced just before Christmas uh, 1967. The metal shops closed. When they came back in January 68, 1,500 of them met in the Sydney Town Hall, called a strike, and within 20 days, the Commission had backed off and said, no, we don't do this. Now, that was really, I think the starting gun for the big pushback against the penal powers, which had been there from 1904. There was nothing new about having penal powers. And just to um, remind people that the penal powers made it illegal to strike. It's never been legal no, to strike. They didn't, no, <laughs> no, I'm wrong. No, no, you could go on strike, yeah. I mean, as you can today, but only, you know, but, but only under very strict circumstances. Oh, right, and okay. what happened was that into certain, into certain awards, the Commission would insert a no, um, that there could be no bans clauses. And if there was a no bans clause in your award, that and there was new, usually a no bans clause, because you'd been on strike previously, that you'd been a naughty boy or a naughty girl, um, and they put a no bans clause in, and if you then went on strike, you were, um, you were in violation of your own award. Oh, so I it was see. more complicated All right. than it's, simply yeah. saying, no, you can never go on strike. So it's a kind of a devious class 
uh, attack? Well, I mean, really? it's, you know, there's always these traps. I mean, the notion that there's a right to strike. There's never a right, right to, to strike. strike yeah. You only have the strike, and this is what the 69 Clary O'Shea dispute really demonstrated, was that when you've got the power, it is a matter of the relative strength of the contending classes. And that what had happened by the mid-60s is that the strength of the working class had been built up to such a point that when it when push came to shove, they were you know the workers are in a much stronger position um, than the bosses were able to to be, uh, to be able to fight back. Can so I just jump in here and remind uh, listeners they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to Humphrey McQueen and we're talking about the Clary O'Shea. Uh, uh, penal power dispute, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, before uh, you go on, there was, uh, like you said, this. There was a lead up. I did read that, in fact, the whole thing that eventually uh, happened that uh, culminated with Clary O'Shea going to prison for non-payment of fines was actually took three years in the making. Like their strategy was a three-year-long strategy. Oh, look, I mean, Clary says that the planning for this took three years. Mm. Um, there was a time in which you'd hear people around the left who weren't there at the time say, like in the Work Choices campaign, oh, let's have a Clary O'Shea strike. Mm. You know, you don't pluck these things out of the air. That was something that Clary and the Communist Party well understood. Years of deep preparation. For example, the builders' labourers took Clary around building sites to talk to them for over a year before the 15th of May, 1969. And that was true right throughout the system. And that's why what I was just saying about the total wage and the absorption of the over-award payments was so important, because all of the metal shops had been involved in this. And what the bosses did after they, you know, they had been defeated on this in early 68 was that they stepped up the number of fines. So that while the fines had been there... Um, from, you know, well, really stepping up from 1954 to 1964, even to 1968, there was an intensification again. And there was an absolute determination that was growing throughout those militant sections of the union and through the moderate sections as well, one must say, um, to that the penal powers had to go. Now, in Clary's case, again, it's even more complicated. I mean, Clary doesn't go to jail simp- directly because the union wouldn't pay the fine. Mm-hmm. It's, the legal system gets more complicated. Clary is finally sent to jail because he, he'd been fined $500 for non-appearance to explain why they hadn't paid the fine. Yeah, the original you know, fine was so something gets, like... You know, as I say, all of these details, you know, um, they realised... And this is the other thing. One, one, I keep saying another thing. One more thing <laughs> that you have to understand, that they were having to deal with that planning, the strength of the industrial groups throughout, the, throughout all of the working places in Australia, particularly in Victoria. I mean, now it's a bit hard to remember that in 1969 federal election, the DLP got 15% of the vote. The industrial groups were very strong in many workplaces. And the DLP, and Catholic The vote. old Santa Maria industrial groups. Yep. And that 
the workers, you know, Clary and the other, and they were there sabotaging it within the tramways union as well because the, the groupers have been trying to get rid of the communist leadership and all the unions, including they were trying to get rid of Clary. And there was an agent provocateur in one place. That's another story which we don't have time for. But that played an important part in how Clary ended up um, having, having to go to jail and I, well. and I guess it's um, important for people to remember, wasn't it the Labor Party that brought in, a Labor government that brought in ASIO in 1935? 1948. 1948, sorry. Later. But that, that's a completely different issue. No, but it's um, a collection of details about people and, uh, and it talks oh, about the yeah, well, framing, well, no, no, sorry. The consciousness. The Commonwealth Investigation Division have been doing that from the, the yeah. 1920s. But it's also oh, the consciousness of... Uh, keeping these people under, under the, the microscope, yeah. yeah, under surveillance. But, but it was really in the workplace um, where they had to be concerned that when they moved, where everything Clary did was aimed at, as you say, this planning and the legal aspects they took, what they had to show to the workers, to ordinary workers, you know, to everyday workers in the workplace was, we have tried everything else. We're not just going out in some wild goose chase. We, this is the final straw. So it's a drama. We've done everything that we can yeah. to defend the union and the very peculiar legal circumstances, as I say, so that they could argue that the activists in the workplace could argue back against all of the groupers who were saying, this is only a communist stunt, don't fall for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, but, just before you go on, there had been a, a couple of, some, in Western Australia, some boiler makers who'd actually... Oh, everywhere. Yeah. I've been all over the place. And what is fascinating, and we're running out of time... but it's No, it's OK, we're going to continue. I would like to continue this conversation. Okay. Look, well, I mean, one of the things that's very intriguing about this, Clary was released from jail on the 21st. Um, he'd been in there six days. Strikes continued in Western Australia and Queensland after he was released. People knew that he was no longer in jail, but their determination to show a couple of things, I think, which is you don't jail a union official for protecting the, the, the resources of his rank and file. That was one of the reasons. You just don't put a worker in jail for that. And secondly, it was an indication of the general mood of the working class. And that general mood had been, of course, fed by the, the whole international situation in 1968 that began with the um, National Liberation Front of South Vietnam occupying the American embassy in Saigon. It flows on through what had been happening in Paris in 68, the Prague Spring, the uprisings across Latin America, the uprisings in the United States itself, the fire this time after the assassinations there. It was fed also by the Cultural Revolution in China. 68 was this kind of miraculous year of uprisings around the world and that in Australia the boss class and if you want to read it look at the editorials in the age while Clary was in jail they were panic struck and that led to ASIO paying the fine yeah <laughs> that of course I mean that's what ASIO is for it's there to protect the capitalist class and they could see I mean they had this you know they they got someone to come forward and say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I've, I've just won, uh, I've just won." No, but money wasn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, and, and wasn't, but 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 also the person who did it was a mate of one of the uh, gropers, wasn't he? 
Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that, you know. But anyway, I mean that's that's how they got it done. But the other sign of this, and this is another very important point to put across, is that in the, on the eighth of March, nineteen sixty nine, the long serving very right-wing president of the ACTU, uh, <coughs> Mr. Albert Monk, yeah. known as Lord Monk of Ligon, um, had announced he was going to retire. And as far as the right was concerned, they were going to replace him with his very, very ordinary, shall we put it politely, secretary of the ACTU, someone by the name of Souter. Now, at this point... There you have Bob Hawke as the union advocate. He'd been their research officer. He had run rings around the bosses in the Arbitration Commission. He became known, he was hated by the bosses as Mr. Inflation uh, because he'd won so many victories in the court. Um, now, at this point, he announces that he's going to stand for the presidency as well. And in Marion Wilkinson's documentary that I'm sure most of our listeners will have heard, or will have, will have seen, which was um, she looks at the relationships between the United States and Australia, and she gets some of the groupers at the time, um, when she interviews them in the, in the early 80s, many years later, to admit. and they say, look, what happened was that shortly after this, there was a meeting in the downtown motel in Carlton. Hawke came and spoke to one of the three Labour attaches from the US Embassy. The Labour attaché then came out of that meeting with Hawke, walked down the corridor to another room in the motel where the group of representatives were and said, the US Embassy will be supporting Hawke. And the reason they did that was that they knew that Souter would never be able to contain the upsurge that was underway. They had a very clear understanding of where the world was at in terms of the balance of class forces. Yeah, that's um, really interesting you should say that because I was working at Triple R at that time and I heard that story directly at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, it doesn't actually appear in the memoirs or in any of the biographies. But I can tell you that um, it was it was a known gossip uh, yeah. around my circles at the time. Yeah, yeah. No, and, you know, I mean, so um, and you've got to remember, the reason they did this is not because Hawke was the Hawke that became Prime Minister. It, this was the Hawke who was much more radical and progressive. And if he hadn't been, he wouldn't have been any use to them. Um, he, he, I mean, he's, he's successful. And it was still a hard struggle. Uh, to win, you know, it wasn't a big majority that he got uh, <clears throat> there as well. So what what I'm really pointing to yeah. is the whole mood of the class, both in Australia and around the world at the time, that was building up so that when uh, Clary uh, decided finally, and, and the lawyers and the advisors and other union officials around him said, OK, now's the time to pull the plug. And you go to court, and we know as soon as you get to court what's going to happen. They're going to send you to jail um, because you're refusing. I mean, there was no alternative to, except to send him to jail. No judge. It happened to be, you know, later oh, yeah. on Sir John Kerr, who was the judge. Yeah, no. But if, you, but if you read the transcript, Kerr goes out of his way to give Clary every opportunity to not go to jail. Mm. He's very respectful 
in, in the cross-examination that he gives. But because Clary refuses to answer the questions, um, to purge his contempt, which is which is why he goes to jail. I mean, it was you know, it, you know, finally in the legal terms, it's because of the contempt of court that sends him to jail, and he has to stay there until the fines are paid or he purges his contempt and is prepared to answer the questions. Um, that you know, at this point, they decide, okay, we've built it up, the campaign's strong enough, and the other tiny thing that had happened was one of the one of the industrial commissioners had implied, and this was given a lot of publicity by the capitalist press, that the reason that Clary wasn't prepared to produce the union books was that he'd stolen the money himself. <laughs> now, that's the kind of slander that goes around, but, you know, at yeah. that point, you know, they had to move as well. So on this day, you know, if you read the wonderful account of what happened on the morning because they meet in the festival hall there are 5,000 of them, job delegates come in from all over Melbourne and Clary goes up to the court and defies the court very respectfully but you know he said no I do not I, uh, he refused to take an oath he wouldn't even go that far he said I do not acknowledge the power of this court to have any control over this particular issue so <clears throat> and then the 5,000 follow him up to the court and they're outside there, and the moment it's announced that Clara's gone to jail, it so happened that Laurie Carmichael was speaking to the crowd at that moment, the word comes out, and, and Carmichael says, Comrades, it's on, go back to your workplaces, call them out, and this, it, uh, he says, this is the time for strict control and discipline. And, uh, this is the, you know, the time where we've got to really build on this. And I'll give you an example of what that meant. The Assistant Secretary of the Builders' Labourers in Victoria, wonderful Norm Wallace, was in the union office that night. And he said, blokes were ringing in, going down to public phones, as you had to, putting your pennies into the public phone and ringing the union office and saying, are we out? Norm said, they wanted to go, but the discipline of the class was such that they wanted to make sure that they weren't exposing the union flank, that they were all going to move as one. Now, that's a real indication of the strength of the class by 1969. And, and, and um, Norm said he was in the union office till 10 o'clock at night. A couple of blokes out in Cooirup had waited and waited and waited by the phone book to try and get through to the union phone because it was being crowded with other, with other phone calls. So that, that was the strength of the class. And, and by the Friday, that was the Wednesday on the Friday, there's this massive strike uh, throughout all of Victoria, other places. I mean, that day, people walked off jobs. School teachers, you know, I mean, I happened to know a couple who just said the moment he went to jail, they just said, no, I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, you know it, it was, but it didn't, it wasn't spontaneous. No, That's the other it was thing a builder. To understand. It was a builder. It was a result of deep, deep organisation, and also because to revert back to where we were before, because of the changing economic circumstances, the workers couldn't go on in the old way. They had to find a way out of this. And when all of this you know, calms down by the end of May, the employers and also the federal government realises that they've got to find a new way forward, that they can't control it in this old way. And what happens in 1970 is the first sign of this. In South Australia, 
uh, one of the legal firms there gets behind an employer who's involved in a dispute with the AWU, would you believe? Although in South Australia, the AWU was much, much more a real fighting union than it was in the rest of Australia. Um, and they bring an action for tort oh. with the legal term for causing Goodness. harm to somebody. Yes, yes. Uh, and they then bring a couple of these against the, um, uh, against the builders' labourers into 1972. But what's important here is that the strength of the class and the nature of the Labour Party was that when this happened, there was sufficient pressure to get the South Australian Labor government to alter the law to say that industrial actions were not to fall under the normal um, uh, legal provision of you being able to perform a, a commercial harm to somebody else. Now, this is what comes back in a more elaborate form when they revised the Trade Practices Act in 1977. Yep. And we can say, I think, not, un, you know, you know, it's a broad sweep, but everything the boss class has tried to do ever since has been to get back to the position that they had before the mid-1960s. Yep. That whether it's work choices or unfair work Australia or, or the secondary boycott legislation and all of these things, they are, they've been trying, struggling to get back to the position they'd held before. And one would have to say, in the current situation... They've been pretty successful. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I've been noticing reading back over history. Uh, that that's exactly I agree with that analysis. It was interesting because when I came as a young person to Melbourne in the eighties, I can, and I did a lot of walking around exploring suburbs. I remember seeing a uh, a big um, piece of graffiti on the side of one of the old walls. Free O'Shea, it said. So even yep. in the 80s, late 80s, people were still... Nobody had got rid of it. They'd left it there. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. No, no, no. You know, I mean, it's there. It's engraved in people's experience and the memory, and that's why it's important to have these events, despite all the carry-on about the federal uh, poll that's going to be on the, on, on the, on the day after, um, on the, well, the meetings, the 15th, and then uh, the anniversaries, the 15th. The other thing, of course, to say about anniversaries, like this, if I can tell this little story. In 1970, there, <laughs> there was a French comrade out here, and I said to him, oh, what are you planning to do to celebrate the, the centenary of the Paris Commune? Well, he exploded. He said, we celebrated that in 1968. You don't wait for anniversaries. <laughs> and you could say that the real celebration of the Clary O'Shea dispute was in 1998, when we rallied to prove that the MUA was here to stay. Yeah. And it was there again, I think, in the mass actions that led up to the defeat of the Work Choices campaign. Unfortunately, that wasn't carried through. And the danger at the moment, I think, again, is, and everyone's well aware of this, but they're not saying it in public, is that we're going to be sold down the river again. But they were the two big campaigns. I mean, the real way to celebrate an event like you know, the, the battle over Clary O'Shea is indeed you've got to remind people and have these annual, you know, these 50-year events and things. But the real way to commemorate it is in your daily struggles and building towards 
big struggles when they're needed, like the MUA dispute and the Work Choices campaign. And, one has to say, to get active, to make sure that some rules are changed and not changed for the worse, <laughs> as they pretty much were um, under, you know, when, when we ended up with Unfair Work Australia. Well, we'll see you on Wednesday, May the 15th, won't we, down we at the, indeed, the down substation? We will indeed, Newport. Yes, that's right. Thank okay. you very much for giving us a well, preamble no, to the event. You know, it, it's, it's not only a pleasure but a great honour to be able to share these important stories of the class and of the, this man who wouldn't have thought of himself as a hero of his class, but that's certainly what he was. Thanks very much, Humphrey. Thank you, Annie. Good. Bye-bye. I just remind listeners that uh, remembering Clary O'Shea event and the defeat of the Penal Powers 50th anniversary is going to be celebrated on Wednesday, May the 15th. It's been put on by the RTBU, that's the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, who uh, where Clary was actually the uh, secretary. Uh, and they're going to celebrate, remember and learn from millions of ordinary men and women who dared to struggle and won. Where did Clary and more than a million workers find the courage to collectively defy unjust anti-worker laws and fight for the right to strike? What are the lessons for us today as we gear up for a major battle to change the rules? And it's Wednesday, May the 15th. That's the day that he actually was taken into prison when there was the refusal to uh, pay fines. And the doors open at 5.30pm. There's going to be speeches at 6.30pm. This is at the substation, 1 Market Street, Newport, in Victoria, next to Newport Railway Station. Tickets are $10. And uh, you can go to the uh, rtbuvic.com.au forward slash Clary O'Shea to RSVP. You can give them a call at uh, 0417 456 001, 0417 456 001 or 0762 That's 0472 342 uh, It's a combined event between, with Spirit of Eureka and the RTBU. Uh, it's at the substation, 1 Market Street, Newport, Wednesday, May the 15th, 5.30pm, with speeches at 6.30pm. So, be there or be square. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, good morning again, listeners. Uh, you're still listening to Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we're just going to go to a few community announcements and then we'll hear the week that was. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We need to pay the rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. 
free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. CCR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019 June the 3rd to the 16th Power Radical Radio A weak solidarity briggy team listener when well first my request last week if anyone could come up with a third possibility other than caring business class party big supremo scuttled them more lash son or socialist party supremo and would be big supremo little billy short and ambition and their lots after next saturday but sadly oh how sadly sadly no response but a week when I'm sure, listener, we were all deeply impressed by the mainstream media coverage of May Day and last Sunday's march a few days after May Day. Well, there was so much news this week, but nothing to match the excitement of Tuesday morning uh, whopping sin P1. It's a boy. <clears throat> Surely a treasonable offence calling the newest member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's ever-expanding inbred hangers-on and it... But the whopping scene did have a brilliant pun. Here we go. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? If some of the Vox Pops from election coverages don't do enough to challenge our faith in the values of one person, one vote in making a case for a very selective franchise, then the case was confirmed, our faith shattered, when we heard Vox Pops with the deep-thinking masses outside Windsor Castle popping champagne corks and screeching with excitement at the birth of yet another little doll-bludging mouth for their taxes to feed in the luxury to which that lot are accustomed and expect as their birthright. Far less important news same day for the future of the non-human race, that UN of the US of the UN of the world report that at least a million species are in danger of extinction thanks to the human race, which regards itself as the top of the heap species. One million over and above, all the species already rendered extinct, and as proud True Blue Aussies, we can celebrate our position as the biggest extinguisher of them all, because hard as it is to believe, like Her Most Gracious Majesty's lot and the caring business class, we as a species at the top of the profit chain know that if it's a choice between them and us, the them has to go every time. After all, often the them stands between the practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all and a bag of money, so it's a no-brainer. Why we see the justified petulance when the practitioners complain that some rare or locally indigenous them, some possum or bird or reptile or brainless marine creature, holds up environmental approval for a bag of money. An unnecessary delay, they point out, because the 
bag of money always gets approved, with guarantees the practitioners will do all they can to protect the bloody nuisance them. And they take these guarantees very seriously, and full marks to that safe as a 100,000 years uranium mine in Western Troublewazi approved one second before Scuttlebin called the election, which admitted it couldn't guarantee, as one of the conditions was to ensure particular thems, small creatures close to extinction living in the thousands of megalitres of groundwater the mine will extract, do not become extinct, and the company told the government it couldn't give that guarantee. And the government said, fair enough, and gave them the approval proving that it's the them's own fault if they get between a great caring corporation and a bag of money. We know it's hard, hard enough to afford the bit we use, so thankfully the mining corporation will be given the water as a gift from all of us, which the shareholders must be so grateful for. So long as the groundwater survives, which will at least be longer than the creatures, insignificant creatures, let's face it, now living in it. Oh, and those who rely on the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin to inform them of all they need to know to expand their knowledge would not know that that UNOP report into a million species in danger of extinction even exists. Many of those critically endangered species would be affected by the other report this week that only a small number of the world's longest rivers are still free-flowing. Anyway, it won't matter, for as we reported last week, Scuttlebem's lot had dredged up an economist who says Little Billy's renewable energy target will also destroy the delicate flower that is the economy, that quite simply we can't afford to save the planet. But it was not all bad news. The planet will fry to death with a very, very healthy economy. We looked at the positive. And given we can't afford to prevent the planet frying to death, then the future of those thems, the endangered species, is irrelevant. They'll just go out a bit earlier than the rest of us, making the UNOP report an unnecessary, scaremongering waste of money and resources. Shame, UNOP, shame. Meanwhile, as the deep political philosophy and intellectual debate that is the stuff of the election campaign absorbs our minds, minds which sadly can't come up with that third possibility, the caring business class, caring for all of us, recognise that truth, that reality. If we can't afford to save the planet, there's no need for irresponsible policies, irresponsible, very expensive, profit-sapping policies to address climate change. If there is such a thing as climate change, when if there is, is going to destroy the planet anyway. Hence, yesterday's Troublewazi Capitalist Review P1 headline, Business Jitters Over Shortened Ambition Win. Business is anxious about a likely shortened ambition socialist government due to uncertainty about its union-friendly industrial relations agenda and a high 45% emissions reduction target. Exactly. Why have any reduction target, costly, costly reduction target, if we're all doomed anyway? And why waste profits on workers if they won't be around long enough to enjoy the wages they steal from their caring employers? Or waste profits on safety measures, for instance, if those workers are doomed anyway? For the record, the caring employers listed those potential socialist front benches they regard as, quote, having a good working relationship with business, end of who might bring a bit of sense into these threatening policies, and I won't give them a week that was name, Chris Bowen, Mark Butler, Jim Chalmers, Anthony Albanese, Penny Wong. 
perhaps there's some relief for the poor dears that Butler will be in charge of climate policy. But that's not the end of their worries. Out in the hustings, let's hope the caring business class doesn't fall for yet another socialist trick. As little Billy keeps promising a fair go, a fairer true blue Aussie. My word, that's in-depth, informative, as if a political leader would promise an unfair go, an unfair true blue Aussie, even though we all know that's what we always end up with. But if taken at his word, a fair go for all, because little Billy is a former union boss, the worst kind of boss, pejorative, pejorative, unlike a caring business class boss, the very best kind of boss, would know a fair go can only be achieved if people receive the full value of their labour and every Everyone receives a livable income. In other words, the destruction of capitalism. In other words, a fair go would mean an unfair go for the caring business class, a loss of control. As far as we are concerned, we feel we already get quite a fair go in this country, even though it could be much, much fairer. Although if by fair go, the, the socialist chap means more of a fair go for capital to help all of us, then... Oh, listener, let's hope the caring business class sees through little Billy's seemingly innocent promise before it's too late. The only slightly encouraging hope is that when little Billy was a union boss, those who know how evil union bosses are, pejorative, pejorative, didn't refer to him in evil or pejorative terms. We can but hope that wasn't part of his long-term plan to destroy the greatest little economic order of them all. You might be able to help me here because I was bemused by why the US of the UN of the US of the World Secretary for US of World State Mike Pompeo or else would encourage Zion to attack itself or at least to defend itself from itself. Very strange. We left him last week declaring this is our hemisphere as we came to terms with the US of attacking evil Russia for interfering in Venezuela, which we thought might be just a, a touch hypocritical. But this week, Mike said Zion has a right to defend itself against terrorism as lots of non-people Palestinians were killed and injured, their property, which they have no right to in the first place, bombed and destroyed. But Mike didn't explain why it would want to defend itself against itself. Uh, I've got no idea. And the US OB is also, in its great crusade for world peace against the bad guys, sent a few peaceful train-killer ships, the odd aircraft carrier, to the waters of evil China and the waters of evil, evil Iran with the Commander-in-Chief's advisor on peace, John Beltupon, confirming sadly that in Venezuela and Iran, the US of could not rule out having to invade and bomb and slaughter in its role at the top of the world peace chain. Notice John Beltupon keeps complaining about this irresistible itch. Speaking of which, also notice how trained killers have this new recruitment ad aimed at young women with the slogan, Do what you love. But for some reason, they left out the punchline. Do what you love, kill people. Must have assumed we'd all know. Well, all that's cheered us up for the morning. Finally, though, good uh, to see former Socialist Party big supremos, the world's greatest, worst ex-treasurer, Paul, little Kevy Rod for the workers, and Julia Gallinghard at the Socialist launch, and all looking so thrilled to see and hear little Billy, leaving us to this simple, multiple-choice question. Which of the three did little Billy not stab in the back?
The answer is, and I'm sure we all got it, B and C. Although I'm equally sure if he had been around in Paul's time, he would have got the trifecta. Still, each of them stabbed someone in the back, so even money. Good morning. Yes, good morning, listeners. Uh, you're still listening to Solidarity Breakfast uh, with Rebecca. Uh, yeah, so earlier we were listening to Humphrey McQueen talking about Clary O'Shea and his legacy and, uh, yeah, his uh, important contribution to the union movement. Uh, so don't forget uh, you can go to that event on Wednesday the 15th. Uh, also on Wednesday the 15th um, there'll be an event at the State Library um, calling for an end to the occupation of the Tamil homelands in Sri Lanka. So uh, now we're going to listen to a speech by Aaron Mulvaganam, who you've probably heard before on 3CR. Uh, and this was a speech that I recorded at the Marxism conference um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where he was talking about what the situation is for the Tamil people 10 years on from the end of the so-called war. May uh, 2009 was a massive uh, and tragic event for Tamils around the world, including uh, here in Australia. Uh, the biggest mobilizations of Wulong Tamils in the diaspora happened then and not since. Hundreds of thousands of uh, Tamils took to the streets to try and stop the killings but it wasn't successful. It was a massive setback to the Tamil fight for self-determination. The theme of my comments is who are the Tamil friends and who are their enemies? It's been 10 years and I don't think Tamils in the diaspora or in the homeland are conscious of this. I think this is the key for Tamils to work out how to continue the struggle for self-determination. Over the last 10 years, we have all been uh, trying to understand, the, uh, understand how the international community allowed uh, such an atrocity to, to be carried out against the Ulam Tamils in 2009. I have struggled to understand the role played by various international players. We now know, as Helen mentioned, uh, the US and UK were complicit in the genocide and India played an active role. Since the war ended, we often uh, look to the agencies in the control of these powers for help. Understanding who these agencies are and their role in ongoing oppression is important for us to continue our fight back. Final days of the war are framed as a, a civil war in which war crimes were committed on both sides. This has been the framing by the United Nations and other international non-governmental organizations and Western states. No one has challenged it, like Helen said, except the People's uh, uh, Tribunal and some other groups. It's not framed as a national liberation war. And as Helen mentioned, uh, People's Permanent, uh, Permanent People's Tribunal uh, you know, found what happened in 2009 as genocide. Uh, following that, we had the, the Northern Provincial Council in 2015 uh, uh, passing a resolution calling the attacks in 2009 as genocide. 
not only as a genocide, but also a historic and ongoing process, but no international actors are willing to call it so. The UN, Human Rights Watch, International Crisis Group, Amnesty International, none of these groups has said anything about genocide. While these groups are happy to recognize killings, uh, for example in Bosnia as genocide, as the US and other states do, they are unwilling to do so in our case. They are unwilling to say anything about the right to self-determination either. While, while the, the Tamil community here and in the, uh, you know, the rest of diaspora are seeking justice from these agencies, our struggle was being used by Western governments to get rid of the Rajapaksha government and replace him with the Western ally. But at the same time, they were also grateful for the role Rajapaksha played in wiping out LTTE. As part of their strategy to get rid of Rajapaksha, the United Nations Human Rights Council worked on a resolution to investigate war crimes. Uh, this resolution was limited uh, in its ability to get justice for the Tamil people. Uh, the, res the, the resolution was to be reviewed in March 2015. Uh, Sri Sena got elected in January 2015. As soon as Sri Sena was elected, the narrative of the UN Human Rights Council changed. The resolution that was weak in the first place was weakened even further. And Sri Lanka was given more time to investigate itself. An in international investigation became a hybrid investigation and then a domestic investigation. Now it's at that point where the call for an investigation could be dropped altogether. We should know, we should also know that um, you know, while we're talking about these international actors, organizations like International Monetary Fund, World Bank and other corporations are aiding the Sri Lankan state. Thanks to WikiLeaks, we now know that the International Monetary Fund was determined to see the Tigers wiped out, even if it meant heavy loss of lives. Our failure to understand the role of these players is delaying the justice and diverting our people's focus on fighting the ongoing oppression. Tamil diaspora is full of people who are promoting the United Nations and other agencies and non-governmental organizations that are acting in the interest of Western governments. A lot of effort by the Tamil diaspora goes into convincing Western governments to take sympathetic stand on the Tamil issue. We send so many people to every session of the UN Human Rights Council. We're obsessed with seeking justice from the very people who are ultimately responsible for the killings. We must never forget that their resolutions say nothing about genocide, nothing about self-determination. It talks about human rights and torture, but it does nothing to explain the causes of these abuses, which is the denial of Ulam Tamil's legitimacy on the island. Yet, we celebrate it as hard-fought win for our diplomacy. Western governments have been promoting Tamil organizations, like the Global Tamil Forum, that have very little support amongst the Tamils in the diaspora, 
And these organizations are then used to promote key leaders in the Tamil National Alliance. During the last parliamentary election, we had community leaders, so-called community leaders, here taking out newspaper ads, endorsing the Tamil National Alliance leadership that has been openly supporting Western governments. Tamil leadership have been unashamedly working with the people who are continuing to oppress the Tamils. Currently, in southern Sri Lanka, we have Sri Sena Ranil Alliance and the Rajapaksha brothers in opposition. Since coming into power, Sri Sena has made few cosmetic changes. This has given the Western powers enough points to promote him. On the substantive issues, such as the military occupation of the Northern East, military uh, impunity for heinous crimes against the civilian population, and a point-blank uh, refusal to allow an international investigation into war crimes, he is at one with Rajapaksha. While Tamil leaders in the Tamil National Alliance are comfortable with their cozy relationship with these war criminals, we find leadership among the people at the grassroots level. In uh, February 2017, uh, people of Kepapalovu showed us that only through mass mobilizations can we force the Sri Lankan state to abandon their genocidal policies. Also, uh, although, uh, also another significant resistance was the, the fight for their land by the people of Iranadivu, a tiny island in the north. After 359 days of protesting on the mainland near Kulinochi, over 300 demonstrators decided to take their land back by sailing to the island and confront the navy that was occupying their land. In doing so, they reclaimed their land on 23rd of April 2018. While uh, the people of Ranadiva continued to struggle without basic facilities, uh, their brave and daring demonstration is another example of how we should approach the fight for the rights of our people. There are strong movements in support of the Tamil political prisoners and the disappeared. People in the homeland are continuing to look for ways to build alliances in the South. They realize uh, the need to reach out to this, uh, the working uh, singular people, discuss and cultivate mutual solidarity. Over the last 60 years, as we struggle with the genocidal Sri Lankan state, singular people have also lost so much in the hands of the state. Ongoing genocidal agenda of the Sri Lankan state only serves the interest of Sri Lanka's elite and imperialist powers. It is time for progressive singular groups to show leadership on the Tamil national question. A way forward is recognizing the uh, traditional Tamil homeland on the island and the Tamil's right to self-determination, which could take many forms, uh, but must include the right to secession. This is the only way we can overcome the tension between the two national groups and create a platform for working class unity. 
we look to progressive section of the international community to use your connections in the South to help promote this. And Tamils must always remember that our national liberation struggle will mean very little if we are not conscious of the class struggle and the struggle for internationalism. There is hope uh, for us if the masses of the singular nation can see, uh, can see through the lies of the Sri Lankan state. Thank you. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Yes, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We just heard uh, a speech from Aaron Mulvaganam about yeah, what he thinks uh, is the solution moving forward for the Tamil people and the self-determination of their homelands. Uh, and I also caught up with Umesh, uh, who is the host of... Tamil Manifest, which will be airing, it uh, is on 3CR Community Radio every Saturday at 1pm, uh, and that's a show that's in English um, and does analysis and uh, shares news from uh, the Tamil struggle. So I spoke with Umesh uh, about the current situation and uh, yeah, in Sri Lanka and the occupation and what they're hoping to achieve from the event, uh, which is this Wednesday, the 15th of May, uh, where they'll be calling for an end to the occupation of their, their homelands. So on May 15th, there's going to be an event in the city. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? So it's at 5.30pm outside the State Library and it's a call to end the military occupation of the Tamil homeland. Okay. And, yeah, this is significant at this time because it's 10 years on uh, from the end of the war. Yeah. So 18th of May marks the 10-year anniversary uh, of the killings in Mulivaikal, uh, which is the, the final strip of of beach upon which thousands, hundreds of thousands of civilians were amassed and where the government bombed them, shelled them mm. from land, uh, sea and air. Yeah. Um, and so 10 years on, uh, there's a narrative that's been promoted about the end of a civil war and reconciliation. But actually, every, every year since the end of that war, uh, it was, which was fought as a national liberation war, the Sri Lankan military has in, been increasing its presence and it's been growing in size uh, such that uh, something like 75% of the entire Sri Lankan military is stationed in, in the north and eastern provinces. Yeah, which is the traditional, which yeah. is Tamil Ilam. Yeah, the yeah. traditional Tamil homelands, um, which is which is a fact that the government has never been willing to acknowledge because of the singular Buddhist chauvinist uh, idea that says the whole island is, is this 
holy land for the race of singular Buddhists. Um, so this this heavy military occupation, so it's something like one to seven uh, civilians, sorry, one soldier to every seven civilians in some areas, it's even heavier. And the militarization uh, also extends to control over civilian affairs. Yeah. So the uh, 25% of the preschools in the northern province are under the control of the Sri Lankan military. Yeah, it As seems it's, quite yeah. bizarre. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's an example. Um, and then there's also issues around the military basically providing or providing some protection for uh, colonization. Yeah, for of, transmigrants. Yeah, tra- transmigrants, Sinhalese mm. colonists, also like the building building of Buddhist statues. Yeah, is, is occurring under control, effective control of the Sri Lankan military. Uh, there was also in Mulathivu, which is the district where Mulibaikal is. Um, there was a, there was a there was a fight that went on for about a year um, between the local fishermen, who said the these intruding fishermen from the south were using illegal methods, uh, destroying the the habitat and, and and the the resources fishing resources of that area, allegedly under the uh, protection of the navy. So all kinds of things are happening because the military is there, uh, which prevents the local civilians uh, um, exercising control. Yeah, over their own resources and land. Yeah. And, yeah. Lives. Yeah. Children. Yeah. Mm. So this uh, event that's happening, mm-hmm. what what are you calling for or what is... What are you hoping uh, to achieve? Yeah, so the the group is, uh, as I understand, going to put out a, um, a sort of open letter with 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 the demands. But I think that the demands along the lines of uh, obviously ending the military occupation, well, withdrawal of the troops, or putting those troops under the control of the people in the north and east, uh, and possibly also. Looking at Australia, asking what Australia is doing to support that military occupation. Yeah. Um, Do you know what that is currently? I can say that um, a short a short while ago, Australia had its largest ever naval exercise with the Sri Lankan Navy. Also, uh, the Border Force. Uh, I think it was last year. Its first ever overseas port visit was to uh, Trincomalee on the island um, and and famously Australia gave these uh, naval, uh, naval or border force patrol vessels to the country in 2013. Um, to stop Tamil people from fleeing to Australia. Um, Australian border force personnel are stationed in Colombo. They've helped set up various um, security systems so I don't know to what depth the security intelligence military cooperations yeah. go. Do you think that the Easter bombings mm-hmm. will uh, have a detrimental effect on the Tamil community? Because I know that uh, the government's been trying to get through their anti-terror legislation for some time and there was uh, protests right. against that so that's obviously a concern that this 
government who's known for its use of torture, um, the UN uh, Special Rapporteur, for example, released a report last year. Um, and and is this just going to give give more um, justification or political capital to 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 instead of uh, working to reduce those oppressive powers to strengthen them? Yeah. And already politicians are have been using these attacks to say that they're going to beef up the security and apparatus. So Gothabaya Rajapaksa announced after the Easter bombings that he was going to run for president later this year on the basis of strengthening the military and the security apparatus because that's why these bombings happened. Right. Even though uh, it's been admitted by government ministers that they knew about the bombings and they didn't act on it. Then there are, all, there are also questions about um, the links of these groups to the Sri Lankan intelligence services. Yes. Mm. Seems very complicated. Yeah, so I guess another reason why it's important is to keep focus on this issue. Yes. Because in, in the media, they've, they've kind of described it as 10 years of of progress. Yeah, right. But in the Northeast, it's been 10 years of increasing militarization. And occupation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that issue is still there and mm. the dangers that will... will um, or even get more further entrenched, uh, and now there's this new angle with the Easter bombings of this, yeah, this uh, uh, fundamentalist war on terror yeah, kind of uh, this new thing. war on terror <laughs> yep, angle, yep. Um, and how yeah how there can be a, res- a positive response to that rather than one that leads to further oppression. Hi. Hi, we're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 to Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie Fair Go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions, and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477-236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition, free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we We are are from from the Voice of West Papua. The Voice of West Papua now has a one-hour show. We have moved from Monday 6.30 to Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. Yes, more news and music from West Papua.
Yeah, I also just want to send uh, all my love to the West Papuan community this week um, as they uh, yeah, are mourning for the loss of uh, Stephanus, who um, was buried out in Dandenong. Um, yeah, he was uh, a member of the 43 West Papuans who arrived uh by a canoe from uh, fleeing their their homelands in 2006. And, um, yeah, he, uh, well, um, passed away due to a battle with cancer. So I know the community's hurting uh, at the moment and uh, our thoughts and prayers are with them, our thoughts and prayers. Um, yeah, our, our love, all our love goes out to them. Uh, and, yeah, now we're, we're going to go to a song. Uh, good morning, listeners. You've been listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Rebecca. 
Uh, we heard uh, early on from Humphrey McQueen about uh, Clary O'Shea and uh, yeah, his legacy in the union movement. Then we were hearing about uh, the current situation 10 years on um, for the people, Tamil people um, in Sri Lanka. And uh, both of those uh, involved events on the 15th, this Wednesday the 15th, both starting at 5.30pm. So uh, yeah, one is uh, down in Newmarket, uh, the Clary O'Shea event, and the uh, Tamil I- event uh, calling for the end of the occupation is uh, outside the State Library. So you'll have to choose uh, between those two. Otherwise, uh, good morning for this week, and uh, yeah, I'll hand over to Asia Pacific Currents. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.